This morning's scripture text for the sermon comes from the book of Genesis chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. I invite you to hear these words. Now the man knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today, You have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put on Cain a mark, so that no one who came upon him would kill him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is our scripture for our lesson today. Well, as a guest preacher, uh, one of the things that uh, I don't get often get to do, but I'm going to do today, uh, is simply say welcome to all of you for being here uh, this morning to Johnson Street. 
One of the things that I enjoy as a guest preacher here is the warm and uh, winsome welcome that Vicki and I always receive by being here. And I'd like for you to exchange a little of that with each other this morning. Would you stand up and find somebody around you and say, I am glad that you're here today. Give a hug. The fellowship. You find your way back. The fellowship and life of this church. The life and fellowship of this church is so rich and deep and. In, If you are, like me, a guest here today, I want you to know in my experience with this congregation that this is a great place to be, and I want to encourage you to come and uh, be a part of this church on an ongoing way and come to be and to experience the good life, God's life, that's uh, present in this congregation. Uh, Summertime, we've got some folks back from camp. We've still got people on holiday and vacation, and it's still... Uh, still that summertime engagements, but let me just simply say that uh, in a month we'll be closing in on uh, school and the start of the school year. Yes, thanks for that downer note, I know. Teachers are growling at me right now. Uh, But uh, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, the fall uh, with you. Uh, There'll be a series that will start on August the 27th on the Gospel of Mark. And uh, Sunday school classes will be working with the Gospel of Mark, and uh, myself and two others will be preaching through the, through the fall, following the Gospel of Mark. It will be a great time of learning and growth, and I'm looking forward to that time with you this fall. Once upon a time, there was a monk who lived in a cave in the wilderness, and this monk was noted for his uh, holiness and his sanctity He was a wise and godly monk, and his reputation was so far-fetched that it finally made its way to to hell itself, and the devil took note of this monk and said, we've got to do something about this guy. So he gathered up three of his uh, junior demons, and the four of them set off to see if they couldn't take out this monk. And the devil said to his uh, underlings, I'm going to give you the first shot to see if you can undermine this monk and bring him down. And I said, okay, we're ready. And so they find him in this desert cave and they sneak up on him and the first demon takes his crack at him. The first demon comes up close to the monk and begins to plant into his mind the, the glory and the wonder of power. He shows him kingdoms and and riches and power and, and tries to get him to, to be tempted by that lust for power. But 
The monk's face stays completely serene. No effect at all. The second demon makes a shot at him. And he comes close to the monk and begins to foist upon him all kinds of thoughts about wealth and riches and possession and gold and silver. But to no effect. The monk sets as calm and serene in his cave as ever before. The third demon takes his shot. He comes up close to the monk and begins to press on him with all kinds of sensual desires and lusts and beautiful exotic women and dancing girls and all of the, all of the attempts to try to lure him into lust and sensual pleasure. No effect. The face of the monk is content and serene. He's at peace. And finally, the devil himself says, Oh, you junior folks, let me show you how to do this. And he slips up, the devil himself, up close to the monk and says to to the monk, speaks to him and says this. He says, Have you heard the news? Your classmate, Makarios, has just been appointed to be the bishop of Alexandria. And suddenly, the monk's face takes on a scowl. There's something about envy that can catch us by surprise. Even the most ordinary of us can find ourselves confronting the realities of envy. I mentioned last week that Vicki and I spent some time in uh, London and uh, the UK. One of the favorite things we love to do in London is to go uh, to a pretty well-known church there, St. Martin in the Fields. Which, was, uh, which is kind of ironic because it sits right at Trafalgar Square, right in the center of London. Many of you, I'm sure, have been there to the National Gallery and you've seen the big lions and the statue to Lord Nelson and all that. The St. Martin in the Fields sits at the corner there. It's called in the fields because back in the 1500s it was out in the fields. Uh, the church itself is famous because of the way in which uh, the, the architect designed it, a guy by the name of Gibbs, he designed it in a way that was unique and new in the time. Rather than having a bell tower set at the corner of a church building, he put the bell tower right on the front top of the roof line over a neoclassical building. In fact, if you want to know what the St. Martin in the church, St. Martin in the church in the fields looks like, just go stand out and look at this building. It's one of the most copied uh, 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 ways of building a church known. And uh, this building itself looks like St. Martin the Fields. There, there's a reason for that. We like going there because they often have concerts in the evenings. And we got to hear a wonderful concert of, of Mozart's music. And it got me to thinking about Mozart. Uh, Mozart played in that building in the late 1700s. Uh, Mozart's life was an extraordinary one, but one of his contemporaries, a fellow by the name of Antonio Salieri, was uh, a friend of his, or not really a friend, actually. They were uh, both musicians in the trade. They were writing music for the church, and they wrote music for the courts. And Salieri uh, found himself quickly uh, overwhelmed with... uh, ambition and anxiety about Mozart, and actually Mozart had a little bit toward him as well. Not so much as you see played out in the old movie about Mozart, but nonetheless, envy was at work, so much so to the point that it impacted Salieri's life in a very negative sort of way. Envy. 
It's the sort of thing that happens in the story in the Bible about two women who had babies. And they happened to sleep together one night together. And in the night, one of the mothers rolled over and suffocated her child. And they both showed up in front of the king's court, Solomon's court, one day, uh, claiming that the live baby was their own. Do you remember this story? And Solomon decides that the thing to do is simply to split the baby in half. It's a rather radical response, but it, it, uh, it all's fair. We'll give each, girl, each woman a half a baby. And in that moment, the real mother was the one who spoke up and said, Oh no, spare the child. Whereas the woman who had been caught up with the demon of envy was the one who cried out, Oh yes, press right on. Strike the child. Envy. It happens in all kinds of ways. Not long ago, there was a story coming out of California about two teenage girls, both in high school, both trying out for the high school cheer team. Friends, girls that knew each other, went to class together, enjoyed hanging out with one another. One was accepted into the squad, the other was rejected. And by the next morning, the one who'd been rejected had found a gun And the winner of the tryouts became the loser, and the loser of the tryouts became a devil, a demon in her own community. Envy. Envy. Getting along with each other is a really, really critical thing. And though it seems like such such a strange story to us to read, this story that I've read this morning about Cain and Abel, its position in the early chapters of Genesis speaks to how critical a reality, finding a way to navigate how we get along with one another and not allow jealousy or envy to take over, is so critical to the way in which we can, in our ability to navigate life. This story, this story of this first family is an interesting one in many ways, the ways in which it is told to us. We've got these the story of Adam and Eve, and they're having a child. And our firstborn child, Eve, calls uh, Cain, which is just a play on the words. The play on the words is she conceives and bears a son, and she calls him Cain. The word Cain simply means I've gotten, or we could call him gotten uh, uh, as in, for short as a nickname. I've gotten a son from the Lord. A lot of attention given to Cain. Then comes Abel, and there's not much said about Abel. It's sort of like what happens in many of our families today. The firstborn, we get all kinds of photographs of all the birthday parties, right? By the time you get to the third or fourth one, you're lucky to have one photograph of the three-year-old, right? Uh, Abel doesn't get much attention here. In fact, his, interestingly, his name just means vapor or breath, which may be sort of a foreshadowing of what is to come of the horrors that are to come so Cain and Abel grow up Cain is the farmer Abel is the rancher and uh and then there comes this time when apparently the Lord likes a good barbecue they decide to put together a little festival or a time of honoring God Now, we don't know exactly what all goes on in this. There are just little hints. We don't really know why it is that Cain's sacrifice is rejected, Abel's is accepted, but there is a little hint in all of this. You see, Abel brings, it says, the first of his flocks, the fat portions, 
which is another way of saying he went out and got USDA grade A prime and brought that to the barbecue. Not any of that cutter or canner stuff, the stuff that shows up uh, uh, that doesn't even make it to the butcher's market. Whereas Cain, maybe Cain went out to the fields and instead of going down... when, my, when I was a kid, my grandmother had big gardens. We had big gardens. And you know, kind of at the end of the row, the corn never would grow quite as strong. You had to kind of go down into the row to find the really good stuff. Anybody nod their head on this? You know what I'm talking about? It's as if, as if Cain just went out and gra- grabbed the stuff at the end of the row, the small stuff, the little tomatoes, not the big, fat, juicy ones. He went and dug up with a spade and, and, and took the little bitty potatoes, not the big, fat, nice ones. Maybe he just kind of just gathered up whatever, whatever he could find in the cooler of the refrigerator to bring to the Lord. I, we don't know what it was. But at the end of all of that barbecue, God regarded Abel's sacrifice and did not regard Cain's. And Cain gets angry. He's angry. He's angry ostensibly at Abel. I think he's angry at himself. I think he's angry at God. He's got anger issues and they've popped out. In fact, it's interesting in the Hebrew, the word anger simply means red-nosed. His nose becomes red. His countenance falls. You can see it visibly. You know what that's like when a person gets angry? It, It changes the way their face looks. And their blood vessels pop out. And they're just red-faced, red-nosed. And Cain has got it, and he's got it bad. And in that moment, as he struggles with these issues of envy and how to deal with his brother and how to deal with this, this disclosure from God, and in that moment, Cain is at a place that I really want all of us to think about this morning. It's a moment that all of us have been in in our lives. A moment where what we have done or not done has caught up with us and we find ourselves in a moment of, of anger and a sense of envy, a sense of jealousy, a sense of loss. All kinds of things are flowing into that moment and God steps into that moment and asks a series of questions of Cain that I think are so very instructive. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance falling? And then he says these things. He says, if you do well, if you manage this moment well, if you will act in proper ways, if you'll make some wise choices, you can come through this thing. And then he says, in a moment of warning, but if you don't act well, if you don't think through the choice that lays before you, If you don't act wisely and judiciously, then I'm telling you, sin is lurking at your tent flap, literally, at your door, at the flap of the tent. Right just outside, sin is crouched there, ready to spring upon you and capture you. It's the same kind of language that we'll get caught up with, uh, we we hear in 1 Peter in the New Testament where Peter will describe Satan like this, like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. It is in that moment that, that Cain has got to make some choices. 
He's got to think through, what will you do? And this is one of the things that I think is so critical for us as we deal with those moments in our lives when we become disappointed or when envy takes over or anger gets a hold of us. There is that moment where we have to make a choice about what we're going to do with it. Are we going to let it conquer us or will we step beyond it? What will we do in that moment? It's a critical spot for Cain and it's a critical spot for all of us. And sadly, Cain chooses poorly. He allows for his anger to move him to action. And in that action, we have this horrific murder that takes place. Fratricide, if you want the big $64 word for it. The killing of a brother. He takes his buddy, his his brother out into the field and he slays him. And in that moment... uh, uh, God comes and says, what What have you done? What have you done? Why have you taken your your brother's life? His his blood is crying up from the ground, and no longer will the ground respond to you as a farmer because of what you have done. What have you... uh, And and Cain will respond with this little clever little statement, I'm not my brother's keeper. And Cain is really right about that. He really is right. He is not his brother's keeper. To be a keeper is someone who simply takes care of inanimate objects. His brother is not something to be kept. His brother is something to be nurtured. There's something sacred about the other human being, the brother or the sister that, does, that transcends the notion of being a keeper. Oh no. Uh, Cain was right. Cain is no keeper. God did not expect him to be a keeper. God expected Cain to love and honor his brother in in that moment. And instead, his lust, his inordinate desire uh, took hold and he slew his brother. You see, there are several things here that I think are really important for us to reflect on as we think about how we manage the living of our days in relationship with one another. This sort of thing is as common as a shoe. We live and work with and relate to and are married to and have sons and daughters and parents and relationships and families. We all are placed in a situations where we have to learn how to get along with one another. How will we do that? One of the ways in which I think we do that is by paying attention to the reality that life is not about me. It's not about me. It's not about how I feel. Not about my being accepted. It's about us. It's about relationships. It's about my life with God and my life with others. There is sort of a sacred triangle of relationships that shape all of our lives. I do not stand in a single sort of relationship to the divine. I am uh, in relationship to the divine, to God, but only as it also relates to you and to you and to you. That is to say, who I am is not just based on this only this vertical relationship, it is horizontal in its nature. 
And that's why Jesus will talk about loving God and loving your neighbor as the first and second commandments. They, they are interconnected with one another. If you want to know how I love God, it will be determined by the way in which I love others. There is this distinct connectedness between my relationship with others and my life and walk with God. That's why the psalmist will say how good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Or think about the the parable that Jesus tells about the prodigal son who goes to the far country and comes back. It is not a story about the father and the prodigal son. It's actually a story about the father and two sons. One who goes away, the elder son who stays home and fusses and fumes and is all envious and frustrated. They're all bound up together in that story in the way in which they relate to one another. So one of the things that I want to reflect on or suggest to you to reflect on is the way in which we relate to one another uh, comes because we live in a triangled relationship with God and with others. Another thing that I want to suggest is that the way in which we we have to learn to, to wrestle with and think deeply about the kinds of moments and tensions that we find ourselves in. This business about envy sometimes is just a facade. It's not even real what we envy or lust after. Uh, You remember the, some of you will remember the the famous uh, actor, Cary Grant. Kind of goes back a few years, middle of the 20th century. Uh, Did a lot of Alfred Hitchcock films, which is one way you'll see him because people still like to go watch Alfred Hitchcock. uh, uh, Cary Grant was so famous in the middle part of the 20th century uh, that everybody thought he was the coolest guy ever. He was the leading man of Hollywood. In fact, he was the second most, uh, recognized as the second most famous leading man of the golden age of of Hollywood, right after Humphrey Bogart. But Cary Grant once said, he said, uh, oh yeah, everybody wants to be Cary Grant. Then he said, his next sentence was, I want to be Cary Grant. Because he recognized there was this false facade of how cool it was to be Cary Grant. It was, it was all just a mirage, this idea of being popular and cool and hip and all that, uh, that was associated with being a Hollywood star then and now. When we begin to enter into this business of negotiating our envies and our jealousies and our angers, Sometimes we're just living in a facade world that we need to kind of just recognize the reality of it all. And we need to recognize that, that all of us are having to wrestle with that in, in all kinds of ways. And we never know when it's going to pop up. And we never know in, in what way uh, it's going to turn out when we enter into all of that. There's an ancient Chinese fable about a farmer who had a horse that was exceptionally strong and fast and beautiful. And the farmer's neighbor envied him of his horse. In fact, he told him about his envy uh, for having such a great horse. And the farmer replied, who knows whether I should be pitied or envied because of this. And the very next day, the horse ran away. And the neighbor's envy turned to pity. And he told the farmer that. And the farmer said, who knows whether I need to be pitied or envied. A few days later, the horse came back along with a mare, another horse. 
which was even more beautiful and strong and fast. And now the neighbor envied the farmer because he had two horses for crying out loud. And he told the the farmer that. And the farmer said, who knows whether I'm to be pitied or envied. And then the farmer's son got up and tried to ride the new horse and fell off because the horse reared up. And the farmer's son broke his leg. And the neighbor pitied the farmer again and said, but the farmer said, who knows whether I'm to be pitied or envied. And then a general of the emperor came through looking for a young man to draft into a dangerous mission for the emperor. But the son was rejected because of the broken leg and the neighbor's son got chosen instead and the neighbor envied the farmer again. And the farmer said, who knows whether I'm to be pitied or envied. Do you get the picture? This business of envying uh, others' stuff is a, has a very short shelf life. It really doesn't do anything. And it's really sort of a mirage. Just because somebody seems to have something you don't, even the favor of God, as Abel did, doesn't really mean it may be as much as you think it does. And so perhaps, perhaps we need to do well to wrestle with the reality of the envy that comes along our way. And perhaps, like Cain, in that moment, we have to make some hard choices about how we'll handle things. The one word I want to say to you this morning as we close this is to say the word of grace in it all. And I have to do that because this text has grace in it. In fact, it's got more grace in it than I really like. I'll have to be real frank with you. When Cain commits this awful murder... And God comes and punish, uh, off, uh, responds with the punishment that comes to Cain. Cain cries out. Did you catch that in the reading of the text? This is too much for me. Somebody's going to come along and kill me. And I'm thinking, yeah, they ought to. You killed your brother. Right? That's, if I were writing this story, it would not go out the way it went. Cain would have lost his life. But God engages him. God engages him. Cain whines. You put a big punishment on me. I'm going to get killed. Somebody's going to kill me. And in that, that interchange, God puts a mark on Cain. Now, some people say that was the punishment. Actually, it was an act of grace, the mark was. The mark was saying, it was like putting a stamp and saying, reserved, don't touch this. Don't touch this guy. It was an act of grace that Cain received in the end, that preserved his life. And so I'm offering, reflecting on that, saying to you that in our struggle with envy and our struggles with jealousy, our dealing with anger and our negotiating our relationships with one another, there is this word of grace that I want to say, and I'll use Paul to do it rather than the story of Cain. I'll use Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, who will speak about this, And say this, so if you think you're standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has ever overtaken you that's not common to everyone. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, also provide the way out so that you will be able to endure it. This is, church, a pronouncement of good news in the midst of the reality of navigating the jealousies and envies that we are so prone to.
That God walks with us in that moment. That when we find ourselves dealing and negotiating with the reality of sin crouching at the door of our house, our, our car, our place of work, our office, that in that moment I want us all to remember these words of Paul that says, look, I am faithful, I will walk with you through that. And in so doing, perhaps, the mark of Cain, the sin of Cain, the way in which anger uh, overcame and brought about destruction will not be what you and I bear in our walk with God and with others in the world. Let's stand together and sing. I've heard.